Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are just delighted to be joined by Dr. Anthony Esselin to talk about his recent book, No Apologies, Why Civilization Depends Upon the Strength of Men. Uh, Dale and I have talked about masculinity and, and issues related to men in contemporary civilization a number of times in, di I think, different contexts in our podcast, but maybe this is the first time we've talked about it very, very directly uh, as, a, as a whole episode. Uh, Dr. Esselin, first of all, just thanks for being on the program and being willing to talk with us. Well, uh, thank you for having me. It's, so, it's a great honor. My, our, our pleasure, absolutely. Maybe one of the things to just frame our conversation or just as, a, as an initial foray into a conversation is uh, when I when I look at the kind of market of, of books on gender, one of the trends I've seen in the last couple of years is, is largely a, a group of books uh, uh, about women, young girls especially, you know, how the transgender revolution is, you know, hurting our daughters, that sort of thing. You know, uh, statistics about 40% of young women between 14 and 24 identifying somewhere on the LGBTQIA spectrum, that sort of thing. Uh, but your your book fills this interesting niche where you're you're kind of taking that cultural gaze and looking at the impact of modern gender discourse on the on the world of men, uh, uh, and and particularly I think with a with an an eye of application on the world of the formation of young boys, and I think that's particularly fascinating. Maybe then a first a first way to just kind of get the get it out is what I don't know what was the kind of catalyst I suppose. Uh, to write a book like this. In one sense, you say this is a book that shouldn't even have to be written. <laughs> That's you, right. You write it, and uh, it's a book that could be justified having been written as much as 20 years ago, but you wrote it now. Uh, <laughs> and so yeah, I, I could have written it 30 years ago, I think. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, the, the, the war on boys has been going on for a long time, so that it, it, as, as um, long ago as the late 90s, um, there were books being written about about this problem. Problem has not gotten any better. It's gotten considerably worse. Um, I think that uh, I think that Christians are more aware of the problem now than they were 25 years ago. But uh, I don't think that we have yet responded in an effective way. And in the meantime, um, the world for boys has gotten immeasurably worse. Um, and uh, uh, for girls, too, but I, I'm writing from experience and uh, I leave to somebody else the, uh, uh, the, the need for writing similar books about, about girls and women. One thing that, that um, uh, I tried to emphasize to my students, though sometimes in, when I was back teaching at a a less Christian college than the one I'm at now, um, I, I had to soft pedal it a little bit, is that um, without, uh, without the virtue of masculinity uh, in, in a couple of different forms, there's no such thing as culture at all. Um, and there's no such thing as civilization. There, I mean, historically and anthropologically, these things are not possible without um, the manly virtues. They, they don't happen. Uh, not only do they not happen, but I think physically they cannot happen, right? Um, and uh, and it, it's, a, it's a shame that we should even have to say such a thing because I, mm. I don't like having to advocate for my, my sex, you know? Men don't like 
good men don't like boasting about how great men are. It seems right. gauche, you know? Um, but when the boys, boys are a different matter. When boys are not taught that it is a great thing to be a man, then somebody's got to step in because these are just kids. They're vulnerable. We can't expect them to just, uh, you know, soak up the nonsense that they're being shown, shrug and say, well, that's just idiocy, but I don't have to bother with that. I won't even say anything about it. It's just stupid. They're not able to do that. They take these things in and it hurts them badly. And, uh, you know, it hurts us as a civilization very badly. Um, so I'm, I'm writing this in part to stick up for them because nobody else will. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the, yeah. One of, so I, I deeply resonate with uh, what you just said there because I, uh, I run a classical program here in um, Brevard County, Florida. It's a K through 12 program. And so I very much feel, um, feel your sentiments towards sticking up for the young boys and the young men. One thing I think your book does, especially in the beginning uh, chapters is show how <clears throat> you know, the human inheritance that we all receive when we're just born into, you know, I was born into America. So the, the, everything, the law system, um, all of the roads, the plumbing, the electricity, I just take it for granted. I think most of modern people do take it for granted. And what you do is uh, you show how that civilization that we've inherited has been forged uh, largely through the grit and ingenuity of uh, masculinity um, and how we sort of just don't even, that doesn't even register in our awareness because we're so plugged into our current moment that we become numb and calcified towards appreciation. Right. And, and, um, and we are generally far removed um, from uh, the men doing the hard physical labor upon which uh, all cultures are founded and even our civilization cannot do without, right? Yes. I, I just, I just recently uh, found out. Uh, you know, if you're wondering, if you're wondering, well, without if if men were not significantly stronger than women physically, uh, would we be able to have any civilization at all? Um, I I think absolutely not. I don't think that the fundamental tasks of lumbering, farming. Uh, fishing, mining, stone quarrying, construction of various sorts. I don't think any of that happens if men have only the strength of 13-year-old boys, which is mm. about the age at which a boy begins to surpass his mother in strength, if not before, right? And I just found out that, uh, uh, in fact, I probably have underestimated um, the, the, the absolute need for this difference. Um, finding out that the force that's uh, applied um, by your arm or your hand um, swinging a tool um, varies according to the fourth power of the length of the arm, the length of the armature. Mm. Um, so that a, a, a mere 20% difference is going to be built up to the fourth power. So we're talking about um, uh, effectively an absolute separation between those people who can do a certain task, chop down a tree with an ax, an oak tree with an ax, and those people who never come near the threshold. Mm. Um, mm. It's, it's, but what we can pretend that we live in uh, a world in which none of that is necessary and all these things just sort of magically happen. 
and they yeah. don't magically happen. I mean, yeah. even with the tools that we have, um, if you can think of a man with a jackhammer, right? Instead of a pickaxe going af after the pavement, he's got a jackhammer. But the jackhammer itself requires tremendous strength in order to, to, to use. Um, and, uh, you know, even the tools that, that make labor more effective are very difficult to use if you are not a strong man and absolutely impossible to use if you have the strength of the 13-year-old boy. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I just, I mean, on a basic physical level, I have to say these things right? yeah. that should not have to be said. One of the one of the things I think is really interesting. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that uh, uh, Dale and I were both born in the '80s, and I'm thinking you were born in a different uh, a different decade than we were. Right. Uh, and so we were we were raised. You know, a lot of the trends you're talking about, in one sense, you know, date well into the mid you know into the mid 20th century, and the and those trends sort of accentuate. You know, when Dale and I are born, and then you look at Gen Z, and you see those trends even more. And one of the things I I wonder about, you know, you talk about writing this book to kind of advocate for young men. And yet one of the things I think I see in my generation, and especially those younger than me, I found it even in myself, in fact, is that traditional uh, right and good appeals to masculine virtue yeah. sometimes hit uh, an atrophy in the human imagination. That is to say, there's a lot of young men who are fatherless or just who have fathers that don't guide them. And right. live in a civilization where, where they're kind of pressured to be this way. And, and so then, you know, maybe comes along a, a, a message along the lines of, hey, it's okay to be strong. It's okay to be this. It's okay to be that. But those terms don't directly appeal to them. They might even have bad associations. They might have a, here's another way to put it, maybe a right. shame relationship to the traditional masculine virtues. And I think because of kind of moral damage, civilizational damage to their yeah. psyche. And I guess maybe one question generating that into a question is if you meet a young man, you know, who's 15 or 20 and, and you, and you detect that level kind of an ashamed relationship at the thing God has made them, how do you, what do you think is a kind of first communicative and almost pastoral gesture uh, to help a young man in that in that condition who who needs these things very badly, but but yeah. it, it, they almost have to grow into appeal for it. Yeah, uh, I think that it is high time for Christians to um, begin to revive the uh, great form of education that mankind has known since the ancient days, since ancient pagans uh, in, in Greece, and that is um, you, you've got to keep. You've got to keep the perverts away, okay? You've got to keep the weirdos away. But um, all-male education, single-sex education for boys, right? But mm -hmm. failing that, I mean, it's to put just that to the side for the moment, um, these things will remain merely ideas, merely notions in the head, unless they're given, uh, unless they're given physical expression. Um, we want the boys to be able to feel the goodness of their own sex in the flesh doing things. And mm -hmm. one of the points that I make in the book is that um, uh, culturally speaking, anthropologically speaking, um, the, uh, the, the male team, the platoon, the brotherhood, the construction crew, right? The, um, the crew on a, on a ship, right? Um, this, is, this is a different kind of organization 
than any other in in human history right it's it's the male protective brotherhood it's the male brotherhood on the quest for truth it's the christ and the apostles okay mm. um and uh it, the feminists don't understand it because frankly they they don't i could put it this way in a loose sense they don't understand football um that is uh football is quintessentially male endeavor uh, not because it requires a lot of physical strength, that, that yeah, of course it does, but because you've got a, a hierarchy of um, obedience and various guys doing a wide variety of things, no one of which has any meaning in itself, but mm. uh, simultaneously, like all the parts of a great machine, like, um, like uh, the, the different different musical instruments in a, in a symphony uh, all work simultaneously to produce something um, uh, really uh, wonderful, right? Um, a ship that can actually fish uh, uh, or a football play, okay? And what the boys need is to belong to something like that um, with the aim of getting something big, something impressive done, yeah um that we don't want we the last thing we want here is an emphasis on feelings we want uh uh, an emphasis on accomplishment action right um the book that uh, might might steer us in in an interesting direction here would be um i mean to pick a, a a kind of you know late 19th century early 20th century sort of uh, semi-Christian, semi-pagan, Rudyard Kipling and his mm-hmm. book, Captain's Courageous, where you take a, a spoiled brat of a boy who's overmothered, and by accident, you cast him on a fishing schooner off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland and Nova Scotia um, with no possibility of communicating with his parents, even to tell him he's still alive, and learning what it is to be a man there by learning to be part of this crew and to mm-hmm. obey and to be responsible and so forth. Um, so we need those things. Uh, such a kid, come on and join us. Um, we're gonna build a barn. Uh, come on and join us. We're gonna clear a field and we're gonna, we're gonna plant something. We have, to have, we have to have it organized towards the making of something. Right. Mm-hmm. And women don't historically anthropologically, it's not possible, perhaps, um, but it's not built into the system. They do not get together in these same kinds of groups. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they cooperate with each other, uh, but not we're not talking about hierarchical arrangements and the simultaneous performing of tasks that no one of which has any meaning except as it is part of this uh, greater whole. Um, they don't invent football. Right. right. I want to, I want to loop back to the feelings bit, but before we go there, because I, I want to unpack that a, a little bit more, but okay. So I'm with you in theory, in principle, this is just the way that it always has been. And again, right. to return to the beginning of the, the, the podcast, it's like, I feel it's almost like, why do I have to say this? Duh. Right. I'm not sure that we have the infrastructure to accomplish that any any longer. 
or the cultural conditions uh, that are necessary to return a young boy to that situation. Because like you talk about, I agree with you that education must be rethought and not even rethought, just basically recovered. Right. Um, I'm doing the classical thing and I'm trying to recover it well, but a lot of the authors I read, the more that you get into the modern authors, you know, about classical uh, education, what they say is, you know, classically, you'd have the children out there, the young boys that are doing the things with their hands. And that right. is the education. Uh, but now it's abstract. We sit down with books and we talk about concepts and everything is sort of floating around in the abstract. But that's because we don't have the we don't have the infrastructure to put their hands on things in the same way. And if we do, it's because we're intentionally doing it. So let's say I have a course that I do with the young boys that teaches them how to change the oil in their car or something, right? Very practical. Right. Right. Um, I have to pull the car up and then I have to explain that we're going to change the oil in the car and then I'm going to describe the procedure. And that is much more, that's much different than having to change the oil in the car because if we don't change the oil in the car, we're going to die. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and it's, it's also a different kind of task too, because there it's, uh, you're teaching each individual kid to do the same thing, right? Uh, yes. In case the individual needs to have it done. Could you possibly, for instance, um, uh, buy a, a, a bunch of lumber and other materials and say, this is what you're going to do now. Um, you're going to want you to build a treehouse, hmm. right? Um, and uh, that, see, that's a, now that, that, that's a different kind of thing. Yes. Right. I, I'm afraid we're going to have to use um, uh, our, our imaginations here. And of course, it's going, unfortunately, much of it's going to have to be intentional. Um, but uh, necessity uh, forces the hand, right? Mm. If, if you have to do a thing and you don't have ideal conditions for it, you still have to do it. Yeah. That's um, a, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I think it. I think this sort of thing just has to be done. Um, if if a boy has a memory of being with a bunch of other guys and they do something that is obviously not done by anybody else and not done by girls, right? Uh, and they do it together uh, under direction, even direction that comes from other boys who know more, right? Take uh, look upon the thing with pride. It'll be that memory will be in their hands and their souls for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's what we want, right? I mean, there are there a bunch of girls are just simply not going to get together to do this, right? Mm. I was I was reading about um, uh, uh, a boy uh, sent to a school on Cape Cod. Uh, a Quaker school back in the early 1800s. This 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 young man uh, is, I think, unknown now, but he should be celebrated by all Christians because he became um, he graduated from Harvard Medical School, and he's the he's the one who caused the American Medical Association to take a principled stand against abortion. He's the father of 
uh, gynecology in the United States. He became a Roman Catholic at age 39. He's raised a Quaker, went to a Quaker school that was all boys on Cape Cod. And uh, Horatio Storer is his name, right? Be be before, long before he became Catholic, he's still in his late 20s. He, he, his embryology that he did, you know, uh, convinced him, hey, you know what, this, this, this uh, developing fetus or the, even the embryo, the conceptus is alive and it's human and it's, and it's evil to uh, do anything to kill it, right? But anyway, so he's writing home and he's just a, like a 10-year-old boy writing home from school on Cape Cod. And the boys decided one day uh, that they were going to build a log cabin, right? Um, and uh, they, they asked for the, you know, the schoolmaster, the family that ran the school for, for hatchets and saws and things like that. Otherwise, they didn't ask for any help at all. They said, we're going to build a log cabin, and they did, right? Um, imagine that as part of your memory. Same mm -hmm. boy at age 17, uh, he was already at Harvard, uh, spent the summer on a fishing ship in, um, again, around the Grand Banks and uh, in the uh, Strait of Canso, um, separating Cape Breton from the rest of Nova Scotia, writing, writing home, telling about the adventures at sea. And he's, you know, he's 17 year old kid. Um, these things are, uh, uh, it's the, in both cases, what he is, he's part of this male team, right? Um, that is not the same thing at all as a group of women taking care of the children together or going out into the fields to gather berries. That's not the same thing. The team is a very different kind, different qualitatively. Um, mm -hmm. It's on a different plane of organization. And imagine that, imagine that that's in your, that's in your your soul for your whole life. Mm. Um, we that that's that's normal for boys. That's the norm, okay. And somehow we have to use our imaginations, but somehow we need to recover some of that because it's essential for their yeah. growth. And then they'll never be confused about their sexuality. You have this. You mentioned, and I think this is such a crucial point. Uh, that in some sense it has to be strategically chosen now. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I think of Taylor's point that like your relationship to kind of your own religion changes a bit when it becomes one option among many. Uh, and I think one of the things we're seeing in gender dynamics, you know, you think of like the, the, the availability of divorce changes some of the dynamics of marriage. And similarly, right. the, the, the non-necessity of a, a certain kind of gender performance means that your relationship to masculinity or femininity is much more conscious. And one of the things I, I really appreciate about Lewis's That Hideous Strength, I was just reading, I don't know if, yeah, I'm sure you've read it. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's interesting to me that the, the kind of hero and heroine are a, start out a feminist in a sort of a, uh, a, 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 a guy sort of who's a passive man in the bureaucratic agency going up the rings. Right. And Lewis, in a sense, imagines the, the redemption of gender in a very modern key, because what remains when Mark and Jane are kind of redeemed in their relationship to their own gender at the end is not exactly the gendered performance of Mr. and Mrs. Demble. They are right. themselves. And, and you, in fact, talk in the book, and, and I think this is 
generating into a question, but you talk in the book about how progress is a kind of unfolding thing. And Lewis right. will have a whole theme in his writing about how the Tao is always inflected through historical circumstances and in an external way, at least in its external performative dimension, there's some change to it. And, and part of it, again, you've already named, we have to will our relationship to it. But the danger, of course, of that, and, and I suppose this is what I would want to get into, is that once we're in that, that willed relationship to it, just as a willed relationship to one's religion can become ideology, so an overly willed relationship to gender, especially if there's a subtle shame functioning in the background, uh, can, can manifest in this kind of uh, hyper perform external performativity right such that the, the the craving to be a man which we're all starving for because it's unaffirmed uh there's another spiritual temptation of the devil which is here's a bunch of ways to be a man and they're shallow and immature right. uh and, and um and maybe this is the last thing i'll say because i think it gets to the point is one of the ways i see that is that uh, there's almost a loss of the grammar of uh, types of men and types of women. So right. it seems to me like the older discussions of gender, on the one hand, they, they speak about the masculine and feminine virtues, but it's understood, you know, that there's tomboys and then the right. girly girls, and they're both versions of being a girl and they're both okay. Right. And, and right. same with men, there's the really muscly guys, but then there's the nerds who just memorize baseball stats. And there's another. That's version. right. And, and that's and okay girls, too. Girls do not memorize baseball stats. Right. Mm. But it's very different types of men. Uh, right. You know, it's like they're both performing masculine virtues, but they inflect very differently. And same with women. There's kind of a range of, of the feminine virtues. And I see in, in our own context and almost uh, 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 the recovery of masculinity in as much as that there's a performative temptation an almost ideological temptation. It seems to me that there can be an, a very calcified imagination right. about what the recovery even looks like. Uh, in other words, we can right. be dumb about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we shouldn't be dumb about it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, one thing that we've got, well, we've got, first of all, we, we should never, we should never forget. We've got, uh, we've got the creator on our side. He made us the way we are. Right? Mm. Um, we've got nature on our side, which is just another way of saying we've got the creator on our side. We've got the truth on our side. Um, and uh, we, you know, Christians should remember that they have the best stories. Christians should also remember that um, in some ways uh, they have the most fun or they, they, they're the only ones who remember what joy even is. Because nobody mm -hmm. else has any feast out there, not really. Um, and uh, so we can go back to um, saner cultures than ours, which is pretty much every one of them, um, and say, okay, well, no, you know, the boys uh, did not only do this that we, you know, uh, would naturally consider masculine to have a football team and all that. But the same kind of imagination, right, that uh, produces the football team also produces, also writes the symphony, okay? Um, it, 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 again, is that strange way of imagining many things occurring simultaneously that are very different, but they're organized to on whole. Um, this is the same imagination that writes epic poetry. Um, no woman that I know in human history has written a great epic poem. It, 
they, they don't, okay? Um, why should we expect it? I don't know why we would expect it. Um, so, you know, we could, uh, we could be quite uh, sane about these things and understand that, um, that this uh, masculine imagination is gonna manifest itself in a wide variety of ways, but that there is a deep um, kinship among them, a, a, a deep family resemblance. Right. Mm. I, I know a very few people right now who would be who, would, who could talk uh, sensibly about because we're trained not to do this, but about why, for instance, um, boys are attracted to games like chess, which mm. you would consider the thing that a nerd would be attracted to. Um, what, what does chess have to do with football? What mm. does it have to do with the construction crew? or the crew on a, a, a fishing schooner or a, a warship, once I begin to talk these ways, right? What does it have to do with the construction crew building an aqueduct? What does chess have to do with that? Um, and I think men start to think, well, of course, I see, right? There's similarities here. Um, and, uh, uh, even even um, even in something like uh, philosophy, philosophy that doesn't degenerate into feelings and impressions, um, uh, but um, the classic philosophy such as we get in Plato, uh, this is uh, there's something quintessentially masculine about it. Um, and you know, what's to say the, the uh, boys aren't never told that mm. um, the same crew that's building the treehouse can be the crew uh, setting up a, a reconstruction of the Battle of Waterloo or mm. uh, the same crew um, committing to memory an epic poem. Yeah. You, uh, you talk about <clears throat> this uh, rage to master Right. Uh, that that men have, and I, I would let me preface it by saying this: um, James Taylor wrote a book called Poetic Knowledge. Have you ever read that? I have not, actually. Oh, it's a fantastic book, and I think you would love it. Um, but he's basically laying out an epistemological case for classical education, like how right. does our uh, how do how do th how does reality crash upon our emotions and senses in a way that informs how we operate in the world? And Plato was actually uh, detailing that in Aquinas too, and Augustine. Right. But one of the things that was clear in the book, because uh, we we're talking about feelings, um, is there is an intuition. There's the way that you intuit the world precognitively. Right. Um, we don't sit there and analyze things and then determine that this is an apple. We see the apple, we know it's an apple, and the way we describe the apple is just in terms of our experience of the apple, right? right. Like that's a piece of fruit, it's red, it's shiny, it looks good, it's going to taste sweet. Um, but those are, you could almost call them feelings because right. it, it is our emotions and our senses that are dictating to us something true about the world. Right. I think that buried in inside of, uh, you know, the deepest part of um, men is what you're describing 
but their feelings in the current uh, world have been um, tuned to to quiet those instincts. Right. And now we're intuiting something. So if, if I say to my son, I have a 15 year old son. Uh, if I say to him, if he walks up to me, he goes, dad, I feel like you've been not fair to me. My response to him would, I could respond to him a couple of ways, but if I respond to him like, well, your feelings are lying to you uh, and you know, you just need to do what I tell you to do. Right. Then his agency is actually being taken from him, whether or not it's true that his feelings should not be considered. Right. So his phenomenological experience of the moment uh, is important on one register, at least. Yes. Uh, because if I alienate him, then he's not go. He will retreat inside of himself, and uh, the masculine call from his nature will be uh, blunted more and more and more. And I can actually right. end up parenting him into effeminacy. Right. Um, so I, I do wonder if what we need to how would you describe the relationship between feelings in men and this rage to master? Would you say that it's actually a feeling to pursue the mastery of something or to yes. obsess about? Okay. And yeah, then, yeah. Let, 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 let's go to um, the, the, <coughs> the classical place for, for an analysis of this. And C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis has it in mind almost all the time. Right. Mm. The abolition of man, it's right there at the fore, but it's, mm. I think it's in almost every one of his works yeah. in one fashion or another. And that's Plato's comparison, uh, Socrates, uh, you know, uh, comparing the, the, the human being uh, to the charioteer with the two horses. Um, the one horse, the appetite mm. is wayward. It's um, it has an ill nature. But the, the 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 good there's a good horse too a noble nature horse um, that it, uh, uh, Plato associates with um, well thumos a drive um, ambition but not in a political sense uh, it, it's it's perhaps we might call it a rage to either master or to unite yourself with something that's good and true and beautiful mm. um, and he, uh, Lewis says thinking about the education of boys especially right which is just in his back background and he doesn't even he, i don't think he's quite conscious sometimes that he is talking about the education of boys not the education of both sexes together <clears throat> he says we've neglected that right mm -hmm. and what you end up with are, is a very bad thing you end up with this monster which is a swollen head and a swollen appetite and no chest Right. Mm -hmm. And where the, uh, uh, the, the brain, the, the reason serves the belly um, rather than the belly being subordinated to the reason through the very drive of the human person, which is yes. that chest. Um, mm -hmm. Those feelings, um, if, if, if that's what we're talking about by, by feel, uh, when we use the word feeling, then that needs to be um, fostered. Uh, directed, hmm. encouraged, uh, rewarded at every step. I just saw a video of um, just a few minutes before we went on of a five-year-old boy, a prodigy in Italy, um, hmm. playing Mozart on a piano 
in front of crowds in the middle of a public square. I don't know what the town was in Italy, right? And there's hundreds of people watching. The boy wearing blue jeans, he's five years old, has yeah. to has to hop around on the seat just to get to one from one end to the of of, of the uh, eighty eight keys to the other. Mm. It, it's absolutely amazing, and the look on the boy's face is of intense concentration mm. and um, a kind of how to put it, a kind of furious love. Yeah. Right, uh, and we need that, right? It, that's not what I mean by uh, the um, when when boys are encouraged to express their feelings by feminists, they're only encouraged to uh, dwell upon feelings of weakness or being hurt, but they're not ever encouraged in that uh that powerful drive to set something right or to mm. get something big mm. done um or to say that's really beautiful and that is yeah. an eyesore right they're never encouraged to do that they're only encouraged to um to uh to wallow um not encouraged to be brave and 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 strong and it's very brave thing that your 15 year old boy does there mm. he goes up to you and said dad you're not been treating me fairly um that's that's a man in the make and if you show him no you know uh i think you're wrong here son uh, the the good son will so okay all right all right well, yeah. but if you say you know son you may be right about that yep uh why um he'll he'll be more ferocious in his admiration for you and perhaps his second thought will be, gee, maybe dad was right after all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, one of the things Dale and I have talked a lot about on our podcast as we've been doing this for a couple of years is how to relate in a kind of New Testament way to, to human weakness. Because the theme of the weak and the strong is just such a thick ethical sort of thematic, you know, throughout the, the ethical discourse of the New Testament. And, and I, I want to mix that, I suppose, with you use the word encouragement. And I was reflecting on that word earlier today, actually. And it was interesting. You know, it's interesting to think that the word courage is in there. And we live in a moment where there's a great need for courage. Uh, 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 and yet for the ordinary human beset with weakness as we are, and I think especially for young men, uh, uh, wounded in a sense by civilization into an even greater weakness uh, the word encouragement strikes me as so important because it quite literally yeah. means putting courage other putting, people. And this is where the team dynamic you talk about matters so much, putting courage inside of someone. That's right. Jordan, Jordan Peterson will talk about this, right? That so many young men walk around and they've literally never heard a word of actual encourage mm. courage has never been put inside right. of them. And yeah. I wonder, and I wonder if one thing that, um, you know, I always want to come back to risks, I guess, because of, you know, my own value system. But one of the things I see, I think, in, 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 in kind of manosphere discourse, or just a lot of men recovering the virtue of masculinity, is that the, 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 the motif of courage, there can be an allergy to the weak man. Uh, uh, you, you see this actually in a lot of modern civilizations, even at the end of the 19th century, uh, Germany right, <laughs> gets sure. a little intolerant of weakness uh, to, to ill effect. Uh, and, and one of the things I, it seems to me is we're trying to find the, 
the balance of the Holy Spirit here is like, on the one hand, we need this great amount of encourage, we need this great amount of courage, we need men to press all the way into their masculine drives. And yet, we're weak. Uh, and how right. do you how do you as a community, not shame already ashamed men back into their weakness, but rather say, hey, brother, I get that. Uh, but you actually can be strong. You actually have more capacity in you than you realize. You actually can do more than you think, uh, right. and, and build them up. Build them up in that way, uh, especially well, when there's such limits about one. Very last thing I'll say, I think, is especially when there's such limits about the sometimes the options. There's communities where I think, like, if you're going to be a man, that means going and doing the Wendell Berry thing, right? But what if right. you're the guy who's kind of trapped in the burbs? And you just got to make do of that. How do you feel like a man relative to those models? <laughs> and that's your life. You know, that right. sort of thing. Uh, well, if, if, to, 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 uh, uh, to, to answer the part that has to do with um, the New Testament's sane and uh, unavoidable um, mm. uh, stress on the weakness of fallen man. Um, we've got the examples of the apostles, especially the example in the testimony of St. Paul, right? Mm. So St. Paul is the one who says, uh, uh, I am weak, okay? We are all weak. God has chosen the weak things of the world to, um, to uh, overcome the strong. He has chosen that which was not to overcome that which, which is, right? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Um, this same St. Paul, okay, same St. Paul, who, who we read, and if we read right, we, we learn um, the stern lesson that uh, without God, we are, uh, we are a complete wreck, all right? Um, intellectually, uh, we are a wreck. We, 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 we fly off into our vain imaginations, into madness. Right. Mm. Um, this, but this is the same Saint Paul who undertakes those uh, uh, those uh, missionary journeys, and mm. he is forced by the uh, recalcitrant and mule-headed uh, Church of Corinth to start to list just what he has endured for the gospel. Yeah, uh, and it's the same Saint Paul who says, "Put on the panoply." of um of the christian life right the panoply of god that means the full infantry armor of god right you're going to be a foot soldier mm -hmm. and that's what you're going to be a hoplite soldier so you have to be put on the panoply taste right i mean the panoply you're going to be a um fully armed infantryman put on the panoply of god the full armor of God. And it's the same St. Paul writing to the brethren saying, is what one of the things I want you to do. And it's, I think I mentioned it in the book, right? It's, it's, it's imperative second person, plural, they be men, right? Uh, now translated in many of our Bibles as be courageous. But it, it means quit yourselves like men. Quit ye like men, play the men, be men, right? Mm. Um, both of those are true at once, right? 
uh, in the apostles themselves. Um, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me. Um, but then he says to Peter at the very end, right? When you were young, you could go wherever you want. When you're old, uh, you're going to go. People are, men are going to lead you where you do not want to go. Indicating by that the meth, the mode of death he was to die, he was going to be crucified. Um, the, this, I think we, can, I think it is certainly possible for us to both hold both at true at once. What we don't want is some stupid play acting, uh, mugging and posing as being big, you know, big strong guys. Um, that's that doesn't get anything done anyhow. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's it not only is it silly in the emotional level, it just doesn't. It's pointless. It doesn't. Uh, if you want to get something done, that's not going to do it. Um, mm. What's mm. what's going to do it is uh, okay. You got this task over here. You got that task over there. You got the task over there. You answer to him. You answer to him. You answer to him. Right. Um, uh, th- th- that's by the way. That too is behind Saint Paul's. Uh, metaphor of the body of Christ. This is what egalitarians don't get at all, right? A body is a body only by being hierarchically organized. Um, it's uh, you don't just have additive members, right? Yeah, and the strengths yeah. and weaknesses of each part make up for each other. That's another theme that's right. of the body is that yeah, that, what where one is, and that's men and women all together. That's <laughs> we right make up for each other's weaknesses. Yeah, that's uh, right, and, and in fact, the body. The members of the body don't even have any existence except mm. as members of the body. I mean, the yeah. hand is for the heart. The head is for the foot. The foot is for the hand. Yes. Um, they, they, they don't even, they're not even real without this corporal um, incorporation, right? And male and female are radically for one another. And the great lie of feminism, and I don't just say, third wave feminism or modern fem- feminism the great lie of feminism is that men and women are not for one another their mm. interests are severable okay mm. that's the lie and that mm. must be denied at the very root it must be denied mm-hmm. okay all feminism it seems to me stems from that um premise that m- women are a group unto themselves um, and their interests are severable from the interests of men. That's a lie. Yeah, which is interesting because Joe and I were talking about this before we uh, got on. But, you know, you look at the project of Switzerland, what they've been trying to do with, um, you know, creating the most egalitarian uh, country in the world in terms of opportunities for men and women uh, and and equal pay and, and so on and so forth. And then naturally the preferences of men and women are so different that they end up settling into basically what you see in America. Women right. tend to drift towards, you know, nursing careers and men build businesses and become CEOs, you know, generally speaking, of course, but right. yeah, nature, if nature will always arrange itself according to what it is, because there's a telos built in each one of us that is, right. you, you have to kill it. You actually, again, C.S. Lewis, you have to abolish man yeah. uh, if you're going to do the thing that screams inside of you to go do this thing that you were made to do. You fail, but you cause a great deal of destruction and misery in the mm. attempt. Yes. Um, Not just for yourself, but for the community, too. For, for the community ceases. 
the community ceases to exist as such, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I look at America right now, um, and uh, uh, you know, fatherless America, um, the the great male teams that civilization is built upon um, fading, and I do not see communities. Okay, I see I see aggregates of population. Um, where, where, if this, if this um, egalitarian experiment or this anti-masculine experiment was supposed to be so fruitful, where the heck is the fruit, mm. right? Do feminists themselves walk down the main streets of their own towns at ten o'clock at night? Do they? They don't. Um, but in a, in a town that still has that masculine expectation such as the town where my cousins um live in italy i assume it's the same as it is as it was when i last visited <coughs> any woman could walk down the main street of that town at 10 o'clock at night <coughs> any woman could because there were men and men are not going to put up with attacks on their women they're not going to put up with that nonsense and they know each other and they know each other right there's yeah. a real community we don't have one and <coughs> we don't um, uh, we, 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 we have almost forgotten what it is that communities are. Right. Yeah. Do you think that's possible in, you know, one of the, uh, again, in, in maybe Dale and I, uh, you know, the world of discourse is thick and we don't have obviously perfectly overlapping circles of discourse, but in the circle of discourse that are, that is sort of proximate to Dale and I, um, there is perhaps a, a, a suspicion about whether the kind of community you're talking about could ever truly develop in a modern suburb or in a city. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's a perception sometimes that only kind of the old small town America with a population less than 10,000 is really the viable model. And there's some truth in that. Like it's, it's, it's more obvious how an intimate community works uh, right. uh, in the small town, but in your you know, you're thinking about civilization writ large. You talk about New York in the book. Do you, what do you see as the possibility of the of of the of, of that kind of community building, and therefore the the kind of inhabiting of gender uh, uh, in in well, I guess in in modern cultural spaces in the suburbs, right. in Dallas. Right. In well, it used to exist, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, cities cities used to be. Uh, conglomerations of neighborhoods. Uh, a person from New York City did not say, "I live in New York City." The person would say, "I live in uh, I live in Canarsie. Uh, mm -hmm. I live in uh, uh, Bensonhurst, right?" Um, and these were, I mean, they didn't have strict boundaries, but everybody kind of knew that's this, this neighborhood, that's that neighborhood, and uh, neighborhoods pretty much functioned uh, informally in some regards and formally in others because they might more or less coincide with a precinct, a ward, right? Uh, but they, they functioned as uh, self-governing entities, right? Um, and uh, uh, that's where human beings flourish. If human beings don't have that, they don't flourish as human beings. Mm. Um, yeah. we, we, are, we are not meant, I mean, I, and I think our, our turn towards the consolidated school district was the single, in a, in a century marked with enormous educational errors, 
that might have been the single worst one, right? Mm. So that we now send little children into places where there are uh, many hundreds, if even if perhaps even thousands of people. Um, breeding mm. anonymity and taking the school physically and in other ways also from the neighborhood that ought to oversee that school. Yeah. Right. Um, mm. We we could have these things, but they were going they were going to re require uh, uh, thinking again about what human beings are, especially young human beings, and um, the thinking about the fact that human beings to be human. Uh, to now to, to take a cue from Aristotle, to be human and to thrive best is to live in the context of some kind of small, uh, more or less self-governing um, entity, a polis. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, rem the, the removal of all sorts of things that make neighborhood life conceivable is mm. anti-political. And, and inhuman. Yeah. And I'll, I'll go further with this. Uh, these neighborhoods do require that um, uh, people actually be home during the day. Some mm. people must be home. Yeah. Um, in the old neighborhoods in New York, businesses were run out of homes yeah. um, so that there wasn't this division between uh, the guy going off somewhere to earn money, the woman is, is at home, and both people are working at the butcher shop. Um, but in order to have a neighborhood, you've got to have people. Um, you've got to have people there constantly. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it was it's already a bad thing when the father is taken out of the neighborhood. The neighborhood ceases to be such if the woman is taken out of the neighborhood too. Um, then we don't have any community anymore. Hmm. Yeah. My wife. The last is, thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go, no, go no, ahead. I was just going to say, up. my wife is an Italian. Her, her her grandfather and grandmother are from Italy, Bari, Italy, and uh, right. uh, uh, and she, you know she cuts hair with a straight razor. But you know, in the old in the old day, you know, she probably would have done that out of the house. She she, she right. now she works for herself basically down you know not far from here. Uh, it kind of has her own booth, but yeah, and I think. Uh, and if she were in New York City, she would just work out of her apartment building and people would come in and get haircuts and go. Uh, and I think right. that's basically how that kind of, yeah, craft was very common in history. Yeah, go ahead, Dale. Yeah, just one last thing as we sort of wind down here. This will be the last question I ask. And Joe, if you've got anything after. Um, I want to I stay on this idea of New York just because we we're talking about it. In your book, you talk about, you draw our attention, and this is one of my favorite things about your book, actually. You're constantly alerting us to the Herculean effort that it took to get here, right. Um, like yeah. right now. Uh, and you talk about, you know, when New York had 300,000 people, well, they had to create a, a water system that supplied 300,000 right. people, and then it exponentially increases, and just the amount of effort it goes into to get water to people. Right. Um, from, from about 20 miles away. Yeah, right. And there is, uh, I think that the city, like if what we're, if we're lauding that achievement of masculine ingenuity and labor that gave us uh, New York City, um, then what we need is men to preserve the city right. ra rather than, I think, um, calling them out of the city into the country where that is the only way that we can get community again. Because I would hate to see these 
you know, these shining examples of masculine virtue in our cities be torn, torn down in the name of masculine virtue for smaller communities. And so there's a sort of paradox there um, where I understand I live in a very small uh, neighborhood in Brevard County. I live on a little barrier island called Satellite Beach. So everybody knows everything about everybody for the most part. Um, But I used to live over in the Tampa area. And you, they're really, you have to be intentional about forming yeah. the communities within those uh, cities. But nevertheless, I'm happy that Tampa exists. Right. Uh, I don't want to dismantle it by vacating it to run to the mountains. I right. want men to step up and be men right where they're at and right. then watch what happens to those communities in those cities. Right. Um, so this is more of just a statement than a question, but I wonder if there's... Um, you know, a way that we can practically, because we, what we've been talking about is sort of abstract stuff, but like right now, is there a way to, uh, short of male only schools and cities, is there a way to call the city boy up to his masculine, uh, virtues and then transform his communities there? Or is that actually impossible now? It's not impossible. And, um, since I have never lived in uh, for for more than three months, actually, but I've never lived in a city uh, bigger than uh, two hundred thousand people. Uh, Providence. I lived in Providence, Rhode Island, for six years. And then we moved to <laughs> moved to get out of Providence. Um, <laughs> right. I, 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 I think I think that. Um, uh, we can, uh, I, I think the churches can be nerve centers here, right? Mm. There, there are things that ordinary people used to do that they no longer do. Right. Uh, the things that I think are crucial to their very humanity, um, they're no longer getting done. Um, the churches might step in here. Uh, and here women would play a very large role. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the social directors of the world are, are women. Um, but, uh, you know, where are, um, now in these local places, where are there, uh, festivals, regular festivals, right? Outside the church, where are they? They're they're not there. Um, where are there, where are there dances to get the boys and girls together as Mm. boys and girls for each other? They don't exist. Uh, I mean, I, I think the 60s were a hor- horrific decade, but I'll tell you what, if I'm listening to um, a band from the 60s singing folk music like the Mamas and the Papas, where things in- influenced by folk music, I think, oh my gosh, how much we've lost. Yeah. Um, where, where, where are the bands? Um, we don't have them. Um, where are the dances? There aren't any. Uh, maybe, maybe a thing we're just just an idea right just an idea maybe it's time for us to think harder about the commandment keep holy the sabbath day um mm-hmm. maybe the commandment is a positive command thou shalt feast yes okay <laughs> and if you're not feasting enough there's something wrong with you um around these centers of festivity 
of sanity, okay? Uh, perhaps something like a recognizable neighborhood might begin to take root. Then it's going to have to do a lot of other things too. It's going to have to, we're going to, we're going to need more schools. We're going to, right, what you're doing here. Um, and we're going to need uh, some things to take place of the Boy Scouts that have decided, you know, the greatest thing in boyhood is to, is to be a girl and have a scoutmaster who, uh, um, right? I mean, the, 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 but, but maybe, maybe the way to start to rebuild a community is to keep holy the Sabbath, hmm. keep merry the Sabbath. Um, thou shalt feast, maybe. I love it. Uh, but I, I, I have to, I have to defer now to people who live in large cities to, um, to help me out on this one. I think Anything that's else? a good point. No, I think that's a good point to end on. I like it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Keep the rhetoric just at the, at the, yes. uh, the tip of the spear. That's perfect. Yeah. Yes. It reminds me of uh, Peeper uh, on. Festivities. Oh yes. Yeah. I love it. Yes. Huge uh, influence on me. Me too. Oh, we can hear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Same. Yeah, it's great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Esselon. Yes, it's been a you. pleasure. And thank you for writing the book and the conversation. It's been rich and edifying. And I, uh, I hope that um, the message can be heard because I believe it's an important message for the modern world. So keep up the good work. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I uh, yes, hope sir. we meet in the flesh one of these days. Yes, brother. Yes, indeed. Uh, Chances are we overlap somewhere. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, All right. Well, perhaps we overlap in uh, maybe you have read Touchstone magazine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm a senior editor there, you know. Yep. And, um, oh, okay. Uh, so yeah. we may have touchstone connections. Hmm. Get Robert George on your show one of these days. Robert George. All right. All right. We'll where him. are you at in the country right now? What part of the, are you? I'm where, in New Hampshire. You're in New Hampshire. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. A little town called Warner. And in Warner, New Hampshire, I believe I mentioned this in the book, in Warner, New Hampshire, in World War II, um, there were Saturday night dances at the town hall yes. every Saturday night. Yes. And there is a picture that I found in Life magazine from 1943 of a 11-year-old boy, 10-year-old boy dancing with a grown woman um, <laughs> at the dance because this boy liked the dance with the grown-up ladies yes uh, well well i'll tell you this if you start the dance tradition up again in your town i will fly up there and we can, <laughs> we can have a festival uh, all right well thank you again um as always we uh the previous episodes can be found on itunes and any of the podcast catchers you can also head over to davenant institute's youtube page and check out the videos but uh, dr eslan once again thank you sir thank you, thanks Joe, I love you, brother. Love you too, man. And we will talk again soon. See you.